are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And finally, spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Gremlins, which came out in 1984 and was directed by Joe Dante. It stars Zach Galligan, Phoebe Cates, Hoyt Axton, Francis Lee McCain, Corey Feldman, Glenn Turman, Key Luke, John Louie, Dick Miller, Jackie Joseph, Polly Holiday, Judge Reinhold, and the voice of Howie Mandel as Gizmo. The genre would be Christmas horror satire. What is it? It's your new pet. <laughs> Number one, you got to keep him out of bright light. Number two, keep him away from water. This is incredible. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. Billy, what are these things? Gremlins. How come a cute little guy like this can turn into a thousand ugly monsters? (laughs) That was Mrs. Deagle. I'll bet every kid in America would like to have one. They might even replace the dog as the family pet. Okay, first things first. Let's start out with the Mogwai and the rules for this cute little Mogwai. These rules are completely unmanageable from the get-go. I mean, how are we supposed to wash this thing? And does that mean it can't drink anything either? Or if it can, what if just a little dribbles under its mouth? I mean, if I was Billy Peltzer, played by Zach Galligan, I would have been like, no, sorry, Pop, I'll pass. I can barely take care of myself, let alone the dog. The whole idea of getting a pet which couldn't wash, couldn't be exposed to light, and if it eats anything during about 50% of the day, it could mutate into a rather scary lizard creature which will try to kill you in the most elaborate ways. Yeah, no thanks. I'll take a Tamagotchi instead. Now, obviously, these were not thoughts in my head when I first saw this movie in theaters at the age of nine, but that's part of the fun of this movie and why it still holds up. Joe Dante basically directed a dark, satirical Christmas comedy which pokes fun at modern American society, at least as of 1984, small-town life, consumerism, and yes, how insufferable so many folks tend to act around the holidays. There's a biting humor which seeps through everything and every character from the mere existence of the villainous Ms. Deagle, that's Polly Holiday hamming it up, strutting around verbally abusing bank tellers when she's not heartlessly brushing off desperate mothers about to be foreclosed. Mrs. Deagle, it's Christmas! Well, now you know what to ask Santa for, don't you? To Phoebe Cates, put upon small bartender Kate, who has some very dark reasons, and we're talking a great monologue here for hating Christmas. And me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird, and instead they pulled out my father. He was dressed in a Santa Claus suit. He'd been climbing down the chimney on Christmas Eve, his arms loaded with presents. He was going to surprise us. He slipped and broke his neck, died instantly. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. To Dick Miller's none-too-subtly-racist Mr. Futterman, 
who gleefully blames everything wrong on, quote, foreign elements. And he has quite the Nixon poster hanging in his living room, too. To Billy's nonstop hustling dad, played by Hoyt Axton as the homespun, wise old narrator type, who's actually not nearly as wise as he presents most of the characters in this screenplay, written by Chris Columbus, his first screenplay, are just flat-out dicks. And I kind of love it. Which is not to say that this movie's fun comes from just watching several bad folks get their comeuppance. Because, yep, the gremlins, in their final gremlin form, led by the clever Stripe, are just about the most dickish creatures that you will ever encounter. Once this film gets to around the 45-minute mark, with a critical scene featuring Billy's mother, things escalate. Jesus, Frank, that's Dave Myers. He does Santa every year. Frank, I really think we should go, man. I've got to find Frank. Do I should start the car? Because I'd really like to go back to the station now. Frank? Where the hell are those things? You see that guy? It's supposed to be Christmas. What the hell's going on? Now, there are tonal shifts that don't always work, as this film sometimes tries to get sentimental. And I'm just not buying it. Look, I get it. Gizmo is adorable. But having now witnessed all of the chaos and death inadvertently spawned by him just getting a bit wet, I'm just not getting the feels when he says goodbye to Billy in the end when that music swells. <sighs> Sorry, that's just me. Maybe I'm just being a heartless dick who would fit right in living amongst so many others at Kingston Falls. Who knows? And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film. I seem to keep coming back to this composer on this podcast, and why not? Because he is one of the best. I'm talking about the late, great Jerry Goldsmith, who did the score for this film. And it does stand out from the scores that he did for more respectable films previously reviewed here, like L.A. Confidential or Chinatown. But his music for Gremlins is just pure, unadulterated genre fun. This time around, he has created music which is often more fast-paced, and generally quite raucous at key points. Now, there are softer emotional beats which kick in at times whenever the story is focusing more on Gizmo's relationship with Billy. But for me, the highlight is what is considered the official theme music for those dastardly gremlins, which is officially titled The Gremlin Rag. Now, we don't really hear this theme until well into the movie, but it's a doozy of a scene when we are first introduced to it. We're just past an hour into the movie where Mr. Futterman and his wife are just trying to watch a Christmas special on TV when suddenly they hear some noises outside. And suddenly the TV goes on the fritz. Something has happened to the antenna outside. So we follow this gruff older gentleman outside to see what's wrong. And he hears something in his garage. Uh-oh, it's Futterman's snowplow bashing through the garage, and it's being driven by a laughing bunch of gremlins led by Stripe. And this is when the theme kicks in. What the hell is that? Real in my 
The gremlins are on the loose now, and they mean business. We then hear this theme repeated throughout the final 40 minutes of the movie until we hear the full version over the end credits. I love this theme. It's just cheesy and catchy, and at some points it even sounds like we can hear gremlins singing along. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Ladies and gentlemen of the podcast, I present you with the very first repeater for this particular category. He's been here before. He was also cited for this particular category for the movie Stripes, and he just happens to be one of my personal favorite go-to guys for comedies in the 80s. Yes, I am talking about Judge Reinhold, who will actually soon be featured in an upcoming episode of another 80s holiday movie, The Underrated Vice Versa. Reinhold has a small role here, and he appears early on as Gerald, the smarmy bank junior vice president where Billy works. He barely has two scenes, even though he does leave his mark as your typical 80s yuppie who loves bragging about how much money he makes and his nice apartment and how he has cable. He also acts like a jerk towards Billy and even a potential rival as we see him ask out Kate in one of those scenes. And then, nothing. It's strange because Gerald seems to be set up as a minor villain of the movie, someone who we will enjoy watching getting tormented by those gremlins in the second half of the movie, along the lines of Mr. Fetterman or Ms. Deagle. But alas, we never see his character after those early scenes. And this was peak Reinhold. This was released the same year as his memorable turn as Billy Rosewood in Beverly Hills Cop. It could have just been fun to see Reinhold get in on the gremlin action, if only for just one scene, maybe. My guess is that he might have had more later scenes that were just left on the cutting room floor. Oh well, just a missed opportunity. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, I'd mentioned earlier about a scene, a critical scene, involving Billy's mother. And that would be Lynn Peltzer, played by Frances Lee McCain, who's one of those character actresses who you often recognize without remembering her name. You know, that guy or that girl. But you keep seeing her pop up and stuff, often responding, oh, it's her. And yeah, because she actually had a pretty memorable run around this time, through the mid-80s, in several iconic films where she all happened to play mothers in prominent roles. She was Miss McFly, Marty's grandmother, in good old 1955 and Back to the Future. She was also Kevin Bacon's single mother, who just moved him to the country in Footloose. And she was even Gordy Lachance's sad mother in Stand By Me. But none of these characters slash performances provided her with the opportunity to do what she does in this movie, around the 45-minute mark, which is when Mrs. Peltzer finally encounters those mischievous gremlins who have just started to reproduce in her very home. Yes, I am talking about her now legendary kitchen sequence. I love this sequence. Mrs. Peltzer is just alone at home, baking one afternoon, when to her horror, she discovers that her kitchen has been taken over by gremlins. And they have not just taken over her kitchen. Uh Uh-uh, no. They're into her baking stuff. They're even eating her gingerbread cookies. Now, these might be creatures that she has not encountered before, but they have now taken over her kitchen, and she's just not going to take it lying down. No way. So what results is the most deliriously entertaining sequence of the movie, as we watch Lynn Peltzer dispatch with these little monsters in the most clever and savage ways, using kitchen appliances. My personal favorite being when she traps one gremlin in a microwave, and then nukes it. And yeah, it's pretty graphic, actually. Pretty graphic for a PG. This movie was actually one of the reasons that they created the PG-13 category, but it works. (laughs) And all the while, even though you could tell that she's somewhat unnerved, McCain just kind of maintains a resolute expression on her face. And her performance is a big reason why this scene just kind of maintains a perfect, darkly comic tone. 
And now the final category, which would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. I really have to give major props to the special effects guru who created both the Mogwai and Gremlins creatures. And that would be Oscar winner Chris Wallace. No, he actually did not win an Oscar for this film. He won two years later for the awe-inspiring, groundbreaking makeup effects that he did for The Fly with Jeff Goldblum, which is a classic horror film that I will definitely have to review at some point. And his makeup is a big reason why it works so well. I was actually somewhat surprised to find out that Gremlins, this film, wasn't even nominated for Best Visual Effects in 1984. To be fair, 1984 was a stacked year for genre films with top-flight visual effects. And back then, the category only allowed for three entries. So for 1984, it was Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and 2010, the year we make Contact. Now, in all honesty, I really can't argue with any of those choices. But still, the puppetry and stop-motion animation used to portray our titular creatures, it holds up really well. These things are, for the most part, quite convincing. They definitely feel like they're not only inhabiting the same space as our human characters, but they're dominating it. We definitely see a lot of this visual effects wizardry late in the film during that bar sequence when we see Kate alone with a drunken, rowdy crowd of just gremlins, imbibing mass quantities of alcohol, downing popcorn, and often smoking multiple cigarettes. Yeah, the whole sequence probably goes on a bit too long. It almost feels like Wallace and crew are just kind of pulling out all the stops to show off all of their various creations, including the Mugger Gremlin, the Flashdance Gremlin, the Jack Daniels Gremlin, etc. But it's still an impressive and fun sequence. And when things get more horrific towards the end, when we see Stripe in his full glory melting in the sun, ugh, It really works. It's very convincing. So for creating several of the most alternately cute, scary, and or funniest creatures in cinema, Chris Wallace is your MVP. My rating for Gremlins is four stars out of five. And yes, I would consider this to be a Christmas movie. And as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the better ones. I mean, that brutal Santa story from Kate just kind of clinches it, right? If you're just looking for some good old-fashioned holiday-themed nastiness, consider this to be a strong recommend. And if you're looking to watch Gremlins, it's currently streaming on HBO Max and Peacock TV. And that ends another rule-defying review. Can't ignore those rules. Special shout-out to my lovely wife Marlene Gershon for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter Ella Gershon for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.